You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name's Amelia and today we have yet another awesome guest on the show. We have Gwenny, who is a cloud engineer, and don't worry, we're going to get into what that is and a whole lot more. Uh, welcome to the show, Gwenny. Thank you. Great to be here. Awesome. Off to a relatively good start. I think we'll, we'll just start with what is your job? My job currently, the title is Principal Engineer slash DevOps Coach, and I'm working as a coach with a bunch of different teams, coaching them around DevOps and t- to an extent SRE, like site reliability engineering challenges. So kind of looking at how they're running their operations, how they're operating their software. Is it in a mature way? Are there any areas where they could improve how efficiently they're doing something or how they're monitoring something or what their processes are looking like and if it's working for them? And that all sounds really good, though you did mention a number of technical words that I wouldn't expect everyone to understand. So we might just sort of like rewind and start with everyone's favorite question. What is the cloud? Yeah, I'll preface all of these abstract concepts too by saying everything in tech is learnable. So I'm from a completely non-technical background and I believe that all of these concepts are something uh, almost anyone can learn. They're very abstract when we talk about cloud computing and related concepts like DevOps and SRE, which we can unpack later. Uh, No one would be expected to know those terms unless you're working in that space. Uh, Cloud, to give a really broad definition or more specifically cloud computing, is talking about consuming IT resources over the internet, essentially. And it's usually pay for what you use. So instead of having to, for example, what it used to look like was that you bought software upfront, you know, like um, 40 years ago or something, or 30 years ago, you'd buy a huge piece of software that took them, you know, one or two years to develop, and then you owned that software, but it was a huge upfront cost, or there was a subscription cost over time. For cloud resources, the way that anything in the cloud works is usually pay for what you use. So that's one of the appeals. And what it means in terms of consuming IT resources over the internet, IT being information technology, it means anything that you can think of related to computing really. So it could be compute power. So similar to like what you have in a laptop or um, your PC at home or at work could be storage. So if you imagine like you have your hard drive in the cloud, we have the same thing available, but it's just that you're kind of renting it temporarily. Also something like a database, which traditionally someone might've had to have the physical equipment to store all of that information. For cloud, you can pay to use someone else's equipment and we don't know where it is. We don't really care. They've found a way to abstract that away through code. So we're essentially like getting a database, but we don't have to own all of the equipment it runs on and we don't have to pay for the building to store all of that equipment, for example. And then inside any of those resources, you might have a service like data processing, 
um, analytics, machine learning. Those are also things we can get from a cloud service provider. So that's the, it's usually a company that is offering these services or these resources for you to consume. Cloud is really just an abstract concept that is talking about the internet and any services stored into it. Um, sorry, stored in it. So for example, if you log into your email over the internet, or if you store something on the internet, so a lot of people are familiar with um, Google Cloud, or they might have Gmail, or they might use G Suite, or their workplace might have something like Outlook if it's Microsoft. So in that case, like Microsoft is, is the cloud service provider, uh, or Google, and then Google Cloud, or Google Drive is probably what people are more familiar with, is an example of something you're accessing via the cloud. But it really just means over the internet. That was the most amazing description. <laughs> well done. And if it's sort of, I don't know if it'll help listeners, but uh, for example, all of these podcasts, they're hosted in the cloud and you access them. And if you access them over my website, it costs me a teeny tiny little bit of money every time that you listen to an episode. So the more people who listen, the more I pay. And if no one listens, it's free. It's fantastic. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a bit, it's a yeah, bit that's of a good thing. <laughs> I, I guess traditionally, like back in the day, I would have needed to have my own probably server that had the website running. I would have needed to have like actual physical hard drives that I'd need to learn to plug in and then it'd need to be connected to electricity all the time and the internet all the time. And then the power would go out and the podcast would go down. Exactly. And you'd need the knowledge, like the time and the knowledge and the experience to know how to deal with all of those different areas. And the the physical like security as well which is something yeah. you know the average person's not going to know about no and you definitely don't have to now yeah. so you how does one engineer in the cloud like what does <laughs> that look like yeah this is probably this is something i really love about tech when i first career changed i thought it was like magic I remember asking uh, a friend of mine who he works for Microsoft. I was trying to understand just even how the internet worked. And he was telling me he could talk to his computer essentially. So he could log in from his laptop at home and talk to his work computer. And it just blew my mind. And I was like, what do you mean? Like you're typing right now and, and you're actually talking to your computer at work. And he's like, yeah, which, you know, now it seems like it's, it, I still think it's cool, but it's like something that's more familiar now. What it really is, is a set of files, or it's like, even to simplify that even further, it's literally a set of instructions that you're giving to a computer to follow. It could just be one file that is in a format that a computer can read. We also might call that human readable. So we have languages or we have types of files. So for example, you'll hear people in cloud talk a lot about YAML files usually. And that's just like, it's a file that ends in .yaml. And it's just a human and machine readable way of writing things. So if you look at it, it looks like English words and they have like colons in between them. So to have your example before of you needing a server inside that file, you might have like server colon and then some information about the server. And what's going to happen with a cloud service provider is you will have that file stored somewhere 
the cloud service provider will essentially read that file and they will it will know to create the number and type of service that you want as a very simplified example. So it's really like a set of files and computers are reading those files. You make that sound so easy. <laughs> Where does it get, well, I guess the tricky thing is, is like what kind of servers do you want to spin up and that sort of stuff, right? I think the tricky thing is everything is abstracted away so much, particularly with cloud. So even 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 with software engineering, because it's obviously matured as an industry a lot, cloud is still young. It's only been around for like over 15, just over 15 years, really. So around 2006 was like the first instance of a kind of commercially available type of cloud computing. That was Amazon that um, pioneered that idea. Related ideas like virtual machines have gone back even longer. Actually, I think back to, I think it's the 1940s or 50s. So the concept of things like having these resources be virtual or having machines be virtual is is old. The actual implementation is really young. And so the industry is young. Yes, it's very abstract. Everything is abstract. So for example, to know a YAML file, you need to know to an extent about cloud architecture. So the way that something is designed to work on cloud. So if it's physical infrastructure that we're talking about, we know that there's like a server, we know that there's some compute power somewhere, probably in computers or like drive somewhere, CPU. When it's in cloud, the way that an application is designed can be different and the way that we can design it so that it works efficiently is different. So for a lot of people that, like for me, it's not as much of maybe a surprise or a kind of hurdle because I career changed and I came in at tech at this point when it's already existing. For engineers that have been in tech for a long time, the the kind of paradigm shift to think about things from, we say on-premise or on-prem. So to think about how something worked and then know that it's really different when it's on cloud isn't always apparent. So in a lot of companies that have been around for a long time, firstly, you might have engineers that are very familiar with how things work on-prem, but then when it's in the cloud, it's completely different. And they might not even be aware of that. There's also a lot more to consider at different points. So for example, security is something you're in the cloud, you're now really thinking about all the time. If you're a developer, you might've been used to working with just application level code. So coding the instructions for how like software works or how a game runs. If you're looking at then hosting something in the cloud, your employer might expect you to be becoming familiar more with DevOps or with operations. So with actually looking at how the software is running, also maybe platform and infrastructure concerns. So for example, a server, if I'm a if I'm an application developer, do I normally need to know about the infrastructure that something's running on? No. If I'm working in cloud, I might. So the I think reason that it's complicated is that there is so much assumed knowledge to know where where to look at something, to know where to start. If you are learning that knowledge from scratch, there is just so much knowledge. And all of these areas that were traditionally 
either more siloed or done by people in a different role might now be an expectation on someone that wasn't previously meant to know anything about that. So for example, a developer might now, if they're working in cloud, be expected to have some understanding of security practices, of architecture, so how to actually architect an application or infrastructure online, of how to run a platform, so how to actually spin up, we say spin up and tear down infrastructure. So the other thing with cloud is it can be ephemeral, meaning it's not necessarily lasting. So it's not a physical server that is just there until it like, who knows what happens, it gets thrown in the bin or it gets burnt or something. If it's in the cloud, it's there when we ask it to be there and it stops being there when we ask it to stop being there. So part of the practice with cloud is we want plans for what's called bootstrapping. So for creating our infrastructure from scratch so that it's there for our application to run. And we want to know if it goes down. So if something happens to it or if something happens to our application code, what's the pattern then? So we're also then bringing in concepts like disaster recovery. How are we protecting our data? And in cloud, there are things like shared responsibility models where the cloud service provider, so that's like Microsoft, Google, Amazon are the big three in cloud. There are other companies as well. They're responsible for some or like less or more of your, for example, your data protection or, for example, security in the cloud, depending on the type of model that you choose. But yeah, those kind of reasons, I think things being so abstract, there being so much knowledge and such a wider knowledge across different fields that would previously have been completely separate departments, really. I think those are the things that make it complicated and also concepts like operations being brought into like an earlier stage of software development or needing to be a consideration earlier on. And another, probably the final thing that makes it complicated is the scale. So when we have physical infrastructure, we can't, scale is limited. With cloud, it's like theoretically not limited. So when we're doing computing at really large scale, that's also adding a lot of complexity. And also when we're having a lot of different services that are interacting with each other, which we often do in cloud, that's also adding a lot of complexity. So for example, again, to use an application developer or like a game developer, maybe previously they've just had to look at one code base, like their application code or like multiple code bases. And when I say code bases, I just mean a place where all the files are stored. So let's say we're dealing with that. If we're talking about cloud, we're then going to have to log into the cloud service provider, look at all the different places where our information is stored and where our information is connected. So like if I'm logging in as a user, that means we're talking about something called authentication. Anytime there's like a password or when we need to verify who is accessing our stuff. So that's probably the last thing that adds in the complexity, doing all of that at scale. So, you know, hundreds or millions of requests per second. Yeah, that just, it adds a lot of complexity. It adds a lot of things to think about. And that's why whole fields have sprung up around that, such as DevOps originally, and now SRE is probably um, becoming more well-known. It's well-known to some, and that's site reliability engineering. That's talking about reliability. So, can someone expect your application to behave how you've designed it to in all different situations? 
And do you know like how your application is behaving? So because when it's in the cloud, we can't see it. We have to read logs. We have to have alerts set. We have to monitor our application and we might not be able to tell what the problem is with the code from the error messages, for example. So things can be harder to debug. And yeah, I think that, yeah, I think that's probably the final thing that adds a lot of complexity, that kind of, that scale aspect or the the amount of complexity that is introduced when we're looking at something that has so many parts to it or so many integrations where things can go wrong. It sounds huge and obviously awesome and very powerful and a bit terrifying. <laughs> what what are you what excites you about the cloud or working in DevOps? Yeah, like I said, it's like magic to me. So coming from a non-technical background, I didn't even understand how the internet worked. I didn't know it was like files. I didn't know you could give instructions to a computer, excuse me, a computer and that it would like know how to follow those instructions. So I, I really think technology is like modern magic. The things we can do with technology and all of the problems that we're going to be able to solve are what is really exciting for me. So I think the world at the moment is facing really complex problems. I think technology is going to be the solution to most of those problems, like people and technology. So I think that that's really exciting to be a part of that. The other thing I love about it is there is a diversity crisis in technology. And I know that being part of like representation of someone from a different background to the majority in tech is a a small part towards showing other people, you know, one of the barriers for underrepresented groups to join technology is that they might not even be aware it's an option for them. I didn't know it was an option for me. So being someone that is, you know, one more person, that's an example of, hey, you know, I wasn't technical like uh, to the point where my friends laughed when I told them I was going to be doing computer programming. I was like in a band and this is the story I always think of. And if people play guitar, they'll know like guitar pedals and they have an input and an output. I used to get those mixed up. I still get them mixed up. So my friends in my band were like, you're joking. Like you can't, how are you going to learn that if you can't even, you know, tell the difference between input and output. But I was determined. I was like, no, like I'm doing it. I don't care how hard it is. I'm going to do it. So I do think if I can do it, anyone can. And yeah, that excites me as well. Finding out and being able to share with people that it is, these are all all learnable skills in technology. We need people from different backgrounds. If you think differently and if it's confusing for you, that's probably all the more reason that it's something that might be an option for you. And there's this phrase I really like that if it's in you, it's for you. So like if you're interested in something and you've got this desire to learn more about it, it's for you. Like follow that desire, follow that urge to find out more. And like this is where it can take you. So like I career changed in formally in 2019. So I haven't been in tech that long. Um, These concepts, yeah, are all things I just have learned. Like you pick them up you read about them, you go to events and like, sometimes I don't know what I'm listening to. Eventually things soak in. I've asked like an inordinate amount of like ridiculous questions 
So I really had to kind of have no ego and just be, be willing to have a curious mind and be willing to not know what I was doing, which was really hard coming from, I was really uh, established in my career before that of curriculum writing. But yeah, it's definitely something I think anyone can do, given that I had a background in music and education and literally couldn't understand the difference between input and output of a pedal. (laughs) We may have to come back to that a little bit because (laughs) clearly they're very different things. (laughs) Obviously cloud and pedals. (laughs) I am curious though, like what does an average day look like for you? An average day for me is really different and that's something else I really love about tech. It's always going to be changing. It's always evolving. There's always something new to learn. For me in my role, because I work with five different teams and different engineers who are at different points in what they're doing, I get questions about a a range of really different stuff. And I also get to think strategically and creatively. So that's, I think, a myth about technology that it's not creative. Um, it's a, it's basically all creative problem solving. And it's something really fun that and rewarding that I think I get to solve really practical problems, but I need to think creatively about them. And you need to juggle the human side with the technical side. Probably also something I didn't really know about technology, how important that people side is particularly I think gender minorities might think that there's this stereotype of someone who's very technical but the best technical people are the ones who are able to communicate with others and able to work in a team we don't really have such simple technology anymore that one person can do everything so good technology really does rely on teamwork and on being able to communicate on having psychological safety So on being inclusive, on being empathetic, on having compassion for other people and their perspective and where they're coming from. And that's something I think the gender minorities, including women, tend to be very, both because they're socialised to be like that, but also I think because of like a gender difference, like that's something, yeah, women and gender minorities tend to be very good at. So I think that's something... Yeah, that's really fun and that I that I touch every day. So my day today, for example, is I had quite a lot of meetings. I had a meeting with um, one of the managers that I work with who manages three or two of the teams I work with. We just have like a little weekly sync about what's on my radar, like what's on my mind and what's on his mind and is there anywhere we need to make changes. So, for example, we booked in a monthly observability check where we're going to be looking at how they're measuring things in their application. So like, are we happy with how they are tracking things? Are we happy with the dashboards that they have? Do we have useful SLOs? So that's like um, a service level objective. And that's when essentially we define a number to something that has a, a customer impact. So if, maybe um, like 80% of the time I want to make sure that people can reach my page and they can see the page and then we can put that into like a an alerting system and a logging system. 
Um, I also had meetings with engineers who are going through the process of setting up an application from scratch and then new to the company and to cloud really. So we're having lots of sessions talking through what the requirements are, what they need to think about early on and how they need to be compliant within the company as well as what's best practice for cloud. I also wrote up an incident report. So one of the things with um, insight reliability engineering is um, a big part of it is having psychological safety. So when there's an incident and that's something that might, it basically things don't go as expected and there might be impact to other services or to customers. We can do a process called an incident review where we look at what happened. We talk about how we might avoid that in the future and maybe some actions come out of that for how we can improve the complex socio-technical environment that we're in. And we say socio-technical because in SRE, because it's not just um, it's not just technology, it's people as well. And it's the processes within a company that can play a role in, in something going wrong with technology. So yeah, at the moment I'm going through a couple of incident reports and I'm looking at what happened. I'm looking at the chat from the incident um, itself and compiling information from interviews we've done with different people. And I'm thinking about what are the themes that I can see? And then I'm writing those up so that we can have a conversation about it and decide on actions. And then from another incident report, I'm following up actions that came out of that with a team that runs a monolith inside the company. So a monolith is when we have one huge piece of software as opposed to lots of different services that are talking to each other. Yeah, so lots of lots of different stuff. And I went to the spa in my break and the gym in my break. <laughs> that sounds very healthy and wholesome. <laughs> That's a lot of different things and a lot of, like you've got like meetings with people, training and uplifting others. And then with the like psychological safety element, why is that important in, well, all of it? Yeah. Uh, for a start, this is my personal opinion. For a start, for me, I wouldn't want to work somewhere that it's not psychologically safe and inclusive. The reason for that is because it's really important for me to work somewhere that is trying to improve diversity and technology. And a big part of that is making more inclusive environments and environments that are working to actively dismantle power structures that are oppressing people. So I want to know that people can, for example, have a place to vent or have a place to raise issues and that they're not going to be punished for that, for example. The reason in SRE that that's important is because there's a lot of uh, research that's been done on, for example, high-performing teams. And we know from that research that one of the areas that we see commonly in high-performing teams is psychological safety and that without that it's hard for teams to be able to perform to the level that they need to to run software, to operate software at scale in, in the cloud. I feel like it's not just high-performing teams in the cloud who would benefit from that though. 
<laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> We're humans. Like, yeah, for anyone to feel, to be able to be vulnerable and connect with other people, we're social creatures. I think that for for most people, both neurotypical and neurodiverse, it's important for us to be able to be ourselves and to to bring like ourselves to a workplace to be able to bring our full presence and our full energy into what we're doing. And our full like ideas and, uh, you know, paying attentionness, all that sort of stuff as well. Yeah, 100%. Love it. Is there anything else that you happen to know about high-performing teams that you think maybe everyone could learn a little bit from? As a as an immediate answer, because it's probably SRE that I really love the information that they kind of came up with. Oh, well, use that. That's cool. Yeah, but there are other aspects. So, yeah, so one of the things I liked that I like about SRE and that I think is applicable to other areas is the way that they think about priorities and the way that they help teams make decisions or the way that they analyze that higher performing teams make decisions and how they can operate things effectively. So as an example, they recommend like a certain sized team. So like a smaller team so that, you know, people can have close communication. So that's probably something that can apply. I know that like, you know, some companies will just keep hiring. So the company I'm at, for example, is like, I think it's close to 5,000 people. But where I came from previously, it was they they wouldn't go above around 150 per company. And then they just had a bunch of different companies. And the reason for that is that there's research around, you know, how much you can socially connect with people within a company and how you can have meaningful connections and communications. So they had a strategy around that based on research around how humans like operate best. So I think that that's something to consider, like your team size. Another another concept from SRE is that they won't spend more than 50% of their time on operations. So one of the concepts they have is like an error budget. So they don't, they'll kind of agree as a team what their, I mentioned earlier SLOs. So they'll agree as a team what their kind of offering is going to be in terms of how their team produces work to, to simplify it. And they will also agree that they have a certain amount of error and as soon as that error budget is exceeded, when they're, what they kind of want to offer is impacted negatively, then they basically stop doing all operations and they work on improving what they have. Uh, in tech, what that usually is, is tech debt. So for example, a list of stuff that you've put off or that you've, you know, maybe the technology has evolved, but your code didn't or something. So I think that's a really nice concept that teams can have in all areas is looking at how you're spending your time and is the amount of time you're spending on the different categories of tasks working for you? Is it tying into business value? Is it working for your customers or the people that you're actually serving? Um, And then, you know, if it's not, where can you make changes to improve? So maybe I think it's that kind of 
it comes back to those priority matrix kind of discussions. So what's urgent versus what's important. So I think any way that a team can have in place a way of consciously being aware of how they're spending their time and then thinking about the amount of strategic or important work versus like how much time they're spending putting out fires or doing repeated work. So for example, a concept from DevOps is you always automate when it's appropriate. If you're doing something multiple times, you're going to you're going to start asking yourself, okay, this is something we're doing more than like five times. Is that something we can automate? Can we write a script to do it for us? So in a different context, you might say, this is something we do all the time. This is what we spend maybe 50% of our time on. How can we make that streamlined? Or how can we make that so that everyone feels better? Like so that people feel good about how it's happening. So I think those are the, probably the concepts that are both from high-performing teams and that can apply kind of any anywhere. Maybe the last thing is tying things to business value. So being aware that when we talk about error budgets, we might look at how long something's taking to improve versus the cost of building something new, for example. So if you are in a different team or in a different field, I can imagine you might look at, okay, we're spending all this time having to maintain this old equipment, but, um, and we, you know, we don't have the budget to buy new equipment. But what you could do instead is maybe tally up, tie it to business value. So, okay, how much, how much money is the business spending on us maintaining this equipment rather than people doing their job? Or meetings are another example. How much is our, is our company paying for everyone to be in this room? And is it worth it? Can we have less meetings? Like, can we, can we save money that way? And also thinking about things like context switching. So context switching can impact people. It's like 20 minutes up to an, a number of hours, I believe. So it's like if you're getting people to context switch all the time, they're absolutely not going to be as productive as they could be. So I think those kind of concepts as well are ones that can apply anywhere. Yeah. I mean, starting with just thinking about how many people you can network with, how many people like a manager can reasonably actually manage, mm. budgeting your errors, like that that makes sense for everything, automating stuff. These things all just sort of feel like they make sense. Yeah. The thing I love about something like an error budget as well, coming from a classical music background, is in classical music there's this pressure to be perfect and an expectation to perform something with no mistakes. That's how you measure success. And I think it's not realistic or helpful most of the time. So I really like that idea of like budgeting in for yourself. Okay, like let me write down the maybe my top three things I want to get done today. And if I get, you know, 80% done, I'm really happy with how I've how I've done things, you know, or have I taken enough rest? No, then maybe like that's something that I need to consider as a priority. You know, you're being effective. I used to teach English and one of the things students I think often don't know and, and a lot of people don't know is that when you learn something, apparently 50% or something of your learning happens when you're asleep. That's when the information is consolidated in your brain. So uh, for a lot of students that might, you know, want to push themselves to study all the time. And this, this is 
relevant in the workplace if you're getting people to work or to be in meetings or to focus on something. There's a cap to the amount you can actually do that. Whereas if you are resting, you're actually making the time that you do spend more productive. So that, yeah, that's something that I think it really makes sense to me. A lot of approaches in tech, like they really align with how I, you know, because it's all DevOps and SRE are all about optimizing and like efficiency and improving how you do things and about sharing information, removing silos. So making sure that teams are learning from each other and have an environment where they can share useful information. And I love that just approach. I like thinking we're helping each other. We're uplifting each other. That's the kind of world I want to be in. It just sounds nicer. <laughs> yeah. Now you've mentioned a couple of times you're a career changer, obviously big fan of career changing, but uh, what was your path say from high school to where you are now? What was, what did young Gwenny want to be? I'm guessing it's not this. I'm guessing that maybe this wasn't a thing. No, I don't think so. I didn't even know this was a, an option. Um, right out of high school, I did a degree in classical music in double bass. So it's like the really big instrument that you see in orchestras. Um, I played casually in the symphony orchestra up there for a time. I went overseas to Europe for a year and learned to be an English teacher. So like a English as a second language teacher. And then when I came back to Australia, I kept teaching English. And I also did, I also started really doing curriculum development there. So like designing a course from scratch, designing learning materials, that kind of thing. It's also called learning designer for online. Um, when I moved to Melbourne in 2012, so I'm from Brisbane originally, I was still working as a teacher and I kept doing that here. And I eventually went into curriculum writing full time. I had a little stint managing a learning center. So that was kind of providing support to students outside of the class and helping them with any kind of range of questions they had in terms of learning and also personal problems so like how I don't know I had people come with like you know family problems or because they didn't really have people to talk to if they were international students sometimes so it was also looking at how people can work effectively yeah a lot of students when they're learning English want to just study all the time and they think that that equals success or they think memorizing something equals success as in equals they'll learn and when you're learning, talking about learning a language, it's really different. So I've always found, like I've always learnt on the side about kind of neuroscience and like linguistics and those are kind of the subject areas I also really like and have pursued in my career. So curriculum development was one way of doing that further. And then I did like a really short amount of time uh, working for a startup, a marketing startup that taught Concepts like they were, it was really digital marketing, but they did uh, user experience, customer experience, these kind of topics that are really common in technology. And they're also to do with kind of how, you know, customers behave, how people buying something behave as well. And that was using my background in education. So I was working as like a training kind of coordinator, almost training manager helping when they would deliver training sessions for 
companies. I was going to be developing courses around that. But because I had a background in writing and editing and proofreading, I would also write content or help them review their content and uplift their content. I briefly worked in marketing at the same time with that same company uh, with a client. So helping them kind of do their marketing, write copy, things like that. And then after that, I changed into technology. So I started doing, I started self-learning originally. And that was first just literally asking questions like how does the internet work to people or, or Googling it. I started learning to code online, just found like beginner materials and tried to do them. Couldn't always understand them. I got asked when I was living in Sydney for four months to help work with Code Like a Girl to teach girls how to code. And they'd said, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't know a lot because we have all of the materials. So that was something where they'd gotten me to come on as a teacher, but I actually learned a lot that way. And I think that's something for people to know. You really, you really learn a lot from teaching. It's so counterintuitive, but yeah, every time I've learned something deeply, it's been because I've taught it. After that, I did, that's when I career changed formally. So I did a boot camp in 2019. It was a six month computer programming boot camp. We also say full stack web development. It was essentially a diploma of IT. So it was subjects, computer science subjects like discrete maths and then things like history of the internet, that kind of background information, but pretty much programming every day, building applications, doing kind of drills in how to how to write code. Um, after that, I went into an internship for six months at one of the big four banks and I asked to go into DevOps. And I'd learned what that was from reading about it, from going to meetups. And it was, I knew it was an area I wanted to be in because in, with programming, you look at an application, like I'd said before, but I was kind of always wondering, well, where is this application running? Like, where is this code going after it leaves my file? What is making everything run? And what if that's not optimized? Like, what's the point of me trying to make my code run well if it's running on, you know, equipment that, or like if it's running in a way that doesn't work? So I really always wanted to know more about the whole system end to end and how it was running. And I learned that there was this area called DevOps, which is really like a set of practices and tools and approaches and a kind of cultural philosophy around bridging the gap between development and operations. So previously, you know, software would be built and then you'd buy it and someone would run it. So it was separate teams doing the developing and the operating. Uh, now there's more of an attitude that you build it, you run it. So if you write the code, you're also responsible for running it because you can probably troubleshoot it faster and it's more streamlined to do it that way. And that's where DevOps was kind of born. And it's a part of the approach is it's this culture of learning and this culture of sharing. And that was something I also didn't really feel in software development. Software development more felt to me, I always think of the old Facebook saying like with something about break it or whatever. Oh, move fast and break things. Yeah, I hate that. Every cell in my body hates that attitude. I was just like, are you joking? Like, no, give me clear written instructions for how to do this properly and let's talk about improving it and, like, let's not waste people's time with 
you know, making them try to figure out how to fix it all the time made me so angry. I just thought it was like disrespectful. And DevOps is much more about how can we run things effectively? Like how can we be efficient? How can we work together? And that kind of aligned more with how I felt as a person. And also with programming, it has this culture a little bit of challenges. So like you do challenges, like coding challenges all the time. And it's like, who can do something faster? Who can write like more code or better code? Um, With DevOps, that's not the approach. It's more like, how can we reduce the amount of manual work? How can we do things in a clever and an efficient way? And how can we think about it so that we do it consciously and thoughtfully? So I knew I wanted to go into that area. I requested to go into it with an internship. And then I did a second internship um, in cloud engineering. So cloud and DevOps are used interchangeably, even though they're not interchangeable. So working as a cloud engineer, you might also say you're working in DevOps and it it would make sense. Um, so the first one, like I was a DevOps intern technically, like by name. And in the second one, I was a junior cloud engineer by name, but they're both working in really the same area. And that was right at the start of COVID. So then that my internship program got cut short. These were both paid internships, I'll add. So for anyone um, career changing, don't do a an unpaid internship. It's like unethical companies shouldn't do it. You deserve to be paid for your work. So that's just as a little side rant. But yeah, I went, um, the, my traineeship got cut short. So that was like April, 2020 and the, but they hired me as a junior cloud engineer. So I started cloud engineering there, worked there for a couple of years, and then I got headhunted for this role um, as a principal slash DevOps coach two and a half months ago. So I've been, I moved for the new role. That is my long-winded, weird career journey. It is quite a, a winding road. Definitely. Uh, But I feel like there'd be a lot of skills, particularly from like curriculum writing that you'd be bringing into this role now, like just like how to teach things and also how to document things. 100%. So I know for your audience, often they're STEM or they might be interested in STEM, that skill set of being able, it's really able to communicate, like to condense ideas down, to communicate them effectively, to think through problems in a systematic way and think about things logically uh, and also creatively, those skills are so important in tech and they're just, there's a gap. So there's really a gap in terms of like the quality of documentation. There's often a lot of assumed knowledge. And as a beginner, you, you don't really understand, like people tell you read the docs all the time, which means like read the documentation someone wrote to explain how to use that, that program or that language. But as a beginner, I was always like, well, it doesn't make sense. Like I can't even begin to unpack like this documentation. Or maybe they give you like one example out of context where I know from an education background, people need multiple examples in multiple contexts. I'm also, I also don't identify as neurotypical. So for me, like I'm, I'm very literal and I can't understand how something works if it's not, like if the words don't match up with what I'm looking at, for example, and because there's a lot of assumed knowledge, often the words, the language isn't super precise. Yeah. So anyone with those skills or with the, who enjoys using those skills, that's another 
I think, sign that technology is a really good space for you to consider. And there's just such a wide range of roles that it kind of depends what you, you know, what you like. It's, it's likely that you can find a role that allows you to use the skills you like, possibly gives you more flexibility than a day job that you're in and allows you to find a company whose like values you align with as well, if that's important to you. Like it was very important for me because I'd worked in toxic workplaces before and the cost is so high, like on your mental health and on your well-being. So I'd kind of vowed like that. I That's why, part of why I left um, education. I didn't want to be part of that system that I felt was exploiting international students. And yeah, I think technology gives you that freedom to try and find a company that you, you know, you're happy to work for and to use these skills that are really, I don't know, really kind of enjoyable skills to use. Like when you're collaborating or, you know, when you're being able to, able to own something and make it better. Oh, it's incredibly satisfying. Mm. I feel like you've touched on a couple but are there any other myths you'd like to take this opportunity to do some myth busting of? <laughs> yeah. So many myths. So many. The main one I would say is that, or the main two, that technology is like not for me because maybe I don't see people like me. I would encourage you to be that person for other people if that's the case. And the other myth, because technology is for everyone, Technology is touching everyone's lives. It's so ubiquitous now. It's in every product. That means that we need to have those people in the room making the decisions. So there's a place for you in tech, no matter what your background or what your what your perceived like skill level is as well, or how technical you are. I'm like, again, to reiterate, the most like non-technical person I, I can think of. So I promise you, like, if I could do it, you can. It wasn't always easy, but there's this, I love the saying, like, you know, choose your heart. Like you can have a job that is boring and that's hard, or you can have a job you love and that's hard. Choose your heart. I think also the other myth that is probably the most common one is that, and this is, I still come across this all the time. So it's that you like have to be a gamer or that you tinkered with computers when you were little or that you're into Star Wars, or that you play Dungeons and Dragons, like these kind of myths that come up or these themes that come up. Some people in technology like those things, but if you don't, that's okay. Um, Do you have to be good at maths? Absolutely not. Do you have to understand data? Absolutely not. Like, do you have to know anything about technology? Absolutely not. Like I, I really went from scratch and anyone else has the opportunity to do that as well. I think, I think that, that was all one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think they're, they're all very good ones. I like the idea of being the person who looks like you in the room. I think that's really important. And thinks and sounds and all these things as well. So just looks. Is there anything else we haven't spoken about that you'd like to touch on? I just encourage people to... Yeah, create the life of their dreams. It's available to you. Like if you know that you want to make a shift in your life, like start. 
you can start in little ways or you can like take a big leap of faith. But there's so many pathways now. There's so many resources, both free and paid. Technology is more accessible than it's ever been. And it needs people from different backgrounds. It needs your perspective. Like if it's something that appeals to you, technology needs you. So like, yeah, I would, I don't know why I'm making such a strong pitch <laughs> to like, to come to technology, but I just tell everyone I know to join technology. Like I'm 38. I, that's another, actually, that's one more myth. Is it, you know, are you too old? No. Like you can learn programming when you're like 80 or 90. Like it doesn't matter the age. It's a learnable skill. You can learn it at any age. It's never too late to start. So yeah, I just, I, I, it's something that I wish I'd gotten into earlier and I encourage someone, you know, at any stage of your life or at any age of your life, it's such a great space to be in. And it's the one where we can all work together to solve like these huge problems in the world. So, and also these, these small specific problems. So for example, just someone, someone else being able to access a a website or do their banking, you know? So yeah, I just, I think it's such a great industry to be in and I encourage you to consider it if you're not satisfied with the job you're in. (laughs) Or if the job you're in is a contract that's running out and there's no contracts on the horizon as well. Mm, Yeah, especially with... Very common one. Yeah, experienced after COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I was was expecting you to be like, and we're hiring, but... (laughs) (laughs) No, like so many companies, we have a skills shortage in Australia. So there's so many companies hiring in tech. Even through COVID, there were companies hiring. So it's sorry, I sh- not COVID is still happening, but even through lockdowns. Hmm. So yeah, it's an industry like this industry is not going anywhere, particularly cloud and DevOps, any programming skills really. So yeah, it's just something. Also, having said that, there are tech adjacent roles we can call them. So that's the people working on, for example, the delivery side. So like breaking down the tasks that the engineers have to do, helping them manage the delivery. So if you're someone that's really into planning and organization, that's also a skill set that's really important in tech. So yeah, just consider it. Come join me. Give it a good thing. Yeah, there's, there's, there's no shortage of wonderful communities that will help support you into this. Yeah. And so to start wrapping up, have you got a shout out or shout outs for us, virtual high fives to people who you think are doing just an awesome job and deserve extra kudos? Yeah, I thought of two. The, I run, um, I, I co-run Women Who Code Melbourne and that's a global nonprofit aimed at inspiring women in technology careers. And the two women I run it with, I wanted to give a shout out to them. So Akansha is one of them. She's a Microsoft MVP. She's incredible. She's working. She's gone into this really amazing role, like I think head of AI maybe. Uh, She went into tech straight out of uni, so I'm super jealous. She's in the data kind of AI machine learning side of things. And Gretch, the other woman I I run it with, is she started her own company. So she was a teaching assistant at the place where I did the boot camp. That's how we first met. And she's ended up, she's learned programming. She's done a bunch of different roles. 
and she's now going to be helping. She runs the Human Collective, so it's a group also aiming at improving gender balance and gender representation in tech, making it a more inclusive place. She's got two kids. She was like a teen mom. She talks about doing that. She's from New Zealand originally. And both of them are just are such amazing women. And that's something that also gives me a lot of energy. The people you meet in tech and the pathways people have had is so interesting. So yeah, both of them are just, they give me a lot of inspiration and I really love working with them. So I wanted to acknowledge them. And they are two very awesome human beings. So (laughs) extra high fives to you two who are hopefully listening. Yep, and keep up the amazing work because it is actually making a difference and it's how Gwenny is actually on the show today. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been absolutely delightful and hopefully everyone's got some like little bits of wisdom to take home and maybe a, a sparked bit of curiosity about, you know, potential careers in tech for them. Yay. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for tuning in. If you like this episode, please pass it on to someone else who you think might enjoy it as well. And if you want to support Avid Resets this year, that would be amazing. Uh, you can buy us a coffee, head to avidresearch.com.au and there'll be a link, buy me a coffee, and you can support us with a one-off little coffee painting. Thanks so much for listening. You're a legend.